0: 11 uh, with me, if you would. First Samuel chapter 11, if you need to use a Pew Bible, that's on page uh, 218. First Samuel chapter 11, we'll read that together here in just a moment. It's good to see you out this morning. Uh, It's good to see the sun shining this morning. I like the fall. I like the rain, but I also like to see the sun every once in a while, and uh, especially on a nice Sunday like this. Uh, Since the month of March, we have uh, marched through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and now find ourselves in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, But one thing that we often lose when we do that, marching kind of from week to week, chapter to chapter, month to month, we lose time. And we have to realize that in this span that we've covered uh, just this year, hundreds of years have passed in Israel's history. In fact, just in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, Samuel's just a young boy, and he's serving in the tabernacle. By chapter 8, he's an old man, and so as we look at these stories, we can kind of get confused sometimes as we think, oh man, well, that's just a couple chapters over, but much time passes oftentimes between these particular events. And uh, Samuel's age was rudely uh, pointed out to him last week uh, when the elders of Israel came and said, Samuel, you're old, and uh, you're going to die soon, and your son's... They're no good. We want a king. And as we learned last week, Yahweh gave them a king. What was the king's name? First king of Israel. Just yell it out. Yeah, Saul. There we go. Saul was the king that was anointed. We talked about that last week. Leaving off in chapter 10, Saul uh, was heading home to Gibeah. Some were gladly following him, but others... Not so glad. They were asking this particular question. How can this man save us? Think about that. How can this guy save us? And I want you to hold on to that question because we're going to come back to that as we work through chapter 11 today. First Samuel chapter 11, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel." Well, the elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people began to weep aloud. Now. But old Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen and Saul said, what's wrong with the people that they're weeping? And so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. And he took a yoke of oxen and he he cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so let it be done to his oxen. Well then the dread of Yahweh the Lord fell on the people and they came out as one man and when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do whatever seems good to you. That's what they said to Nahash. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, Watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Well, Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. And so all the people went to Gilgal, and there made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let's pray. Father, we ask now, as already has been asked multiple times, Lord, that's how needy we are. We need you to work through your word today. We need your spirit to work just as it worked in Saul thousands of years ago. Uh, Lord, in our battles and whatever we're facing, we pray that you would work today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing group uh, that's gathered here in worship today. Thank you for our teachers who are teaching downstairs and those who are serving. We pray your blessing in Jesus' name, amen. In the ancient world of warring nations and clans, there arose a nasty... Amorite warlord named Nahash and I'm just going to call him Nahash the Nasty uh, and we'll see why that is in just a moment but let's think about the Ammonites because they're introduced to us here again they lived on the eastern shore of the Jordan River they lived to the east and so we've kind of broken this down before uh, in this way as we've worked through this just imagine that our, our middle aisle here is the Jordan River and then on this side towards the west you go to the Mediterranean Sea this is Israel proper on this side, some of the tribes still dwelled, but, but further to the east were the Ammonites and some of the other kingdoms. And one way that you can kind of remember where Ammonites were uh, in modern context, if you're up on your geography, uh, what's the, the capital of the country of Jordan? It's it's Amman. Uh, and it's named after the Ammonites. It's named after their heritage, and it goes back. But the last time we heard from the Ammonites was all the way back in Judges chapter 11 with the judge Jephthah. Jephthah led Israel in a battle against the Ammonites, wiping the desert floor with them, and we haven't heard from them since then. But now Nahash rises, and he makes a move against the city of Jabesh-Gilead. So imagine again, we've got the Jordan River. Up to the north is the Sea of Galilee. About 20 miles south of the Sea of Galilee, along the Jordan River, is Jabesh-Gilead. It's a couple miles to the east, but that's where Jabesh-Gilead sat. Their prime pickings, Uh, for the Ammonites. They're right there in their territory in their particular area. Now the last time we heard from Jabesh Gilead, we go back to the book of Judges again. There's a lot of Judges connections in this text. Uh, Jabesh Gilead was the one clan, the one group that did not respond when Israel said, we need to go to war with Benjamin. Remember Benjamin had completed all those atrocities after the men of Benjamin had sexually assaulted the Levites' concubine and and they would not uh, respond. And so all of Israel came to war. Well, the men of Jabesh Gilead refused to. And so as a result in time, when some of the Benjamites needed wives, Israel wiped out Jabesh Gilead, their men, and took the women and gave them uh, to the Benjamites. And so we've got this connection that we can make here. So... Nahash besieges this particular city And the men of Jabesh Gilead They're ready to make a deal They're saying hey what treaty can we make And Nahash's response is Okay I'll make a treaty with you But it involves me scooping out everybody's right eyeball So not a great treaty uh, Think about that The right eye again That significance of the right uh, They would not be worthy for battle They would not be worthy for anything But, but the lowest of servitude If their right eye was taken But Naosh's ultimate goal isn't just taking people's eyeballs out and besieging the city. He wants to humiliate Israel. Uh, He wants to humiliate Israel's God, Yahweh. This is his objective in making the move. And with nothing left to lose, this is an interesting part of the story. Uh, The people of Jabesh Gilead say, can we have like a seven-day break to send some people out to see if somebody will come and help us? Somebody may come save us? I think Jabesh, Gilead, they recognize that they're kind of a blight in Israel. And they're probably thinking it may be a long shot that anybody would even come to help us based upon our poor history. And and the other side of that is the arrogance of Nahash that he says, sure, take seven days. See if somebody will come help you. He doesn't believe either that they'll come to help them or that they would be capable of helping them. And so he says, yeah, take whatever time you want. Uh, We'll deal with this again in a few more days. And so they send the messengers throughout. The first place they go, at least according to what we read, is to Gibeah. Now, there's a couple reasons that could be. Uh, One, it could be uh, because that's where Saul is. Saul is the newly anointed king, though he's not really functioning as the king at this point. But I think the the main reason they go to Gibeah is because Gibeah is their really only connection into Israel. That's where their heritage is. Remember, all of the women were taken from Jabesh Gilead and taken to the, the area of Gibeah, the tribe of Benjamin. And so they go to their relatives, they go to their family and they're there and they're saying, here's what's going on in our city and they're weeping and they're crying. And Saul, who's been working in the fields, that's how we know he's not really functioning as as a king yet. He's working in the fields and he comes back and he says, why is everybody crying? What's with the weeping? And they say, oh, here's what's happening at Jabesh. And then comes the key for us to understand. Notice verse six. After hearing this, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and his anger was greatly kindled. Who does that sound like? The Spirit of God rushed upon him. Samson. That language is used as Samson in the book of Judges multiple times. And here we have kind of a second Samson in Saul and the spirit of God rushes on him. And under the direction now and the control of the spirit, Saul actually takes the oxen that he had been using and he cuts them up and he sends them out pieces of this oxen out to the the, the elders in Israel with messengers. And he says this to him, uh, this is going to happen to your oxen if you don't show up to fight with me and Samson. Samuel. Now, what does that sound like? The end of the book of Judges. When the Levite's concubine had been killed, he cut her up and sent her out uh, to get the attention of the tribes of Israel. Again, all these amazing connections that we see. And so the Lord moves and Israel responds. 300,000 Israelite soldiers show up at Bezek. That's just on this side of the Jordan River across from Jabesh Gilead. 300,000 ready to fight, and word gravitates toward the men of Jabesh Gilead. They're excited that somebody's actually responding to their plea for help, and they continue to play the game, and they tell Naosh, hey, we'll surrender to you tomorrow. Only tomorrow did not come for Naosh, because sometime between 2 and 6 a.m., Saul led the armies of Israel into the camp of Nahash and the Ammonites and utterly wiped them out. I like how it's worded that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Uh, they utterly destroyed the armies of the Ammonites. And so following this, this battle that is very simply described as most of them are, uh, some of the people in Israel, they went to Samuel, and they said, who were those guys who were mocking and questioning Saul's leadership? Who were the guys who said, can this guy save us? Can this guy lead us? Because we want to put those guys to death because Saul just had a pretty good day of leading us. And I love Saul's response here. We won't get much more of this kind of stuff from Saul, but I love his response in this. He says, no, nobody's going to be put to death today. For today... Yahweh has worked salvation in Israel. Amen, Saul, yes, he seems to get it at this point. This is of the Lord. This is of Yahweh that he has brought this salvation. And in the closing scenes of the chapter, what happens is Samuel then gathers all of Israel together at the city of Gilgal or the spot of Gilgal because he wants to renew the kingdom. But why why Gilgal? So if you're up here where Bezek is and Jabesh Gilead, kind of in the northern part of Israel, you go further south, just north of the Dead Sea, is Gilgal. And it does have historical significance for Israel. If you go back to Joshua chapter 4, Joshua chapter 5, Gilgal is where they set up those 12 stones of remembrance when they crossed the Jordan River. It's where they were uh, circumcised and they recommitted to the covenant that they made before they marched around Jericho and went on in to the land that God had promised them. Samuel wants to bring them back to their roots, a place of significance for them. And he has some things that he wants to share, some things he needs to get off of his chest. Uh, We're not going to cover that today. We'll cover that in a couple of weeks. Uh, His particularly kind of a last sermon that he'll give as the judge of Israel before he simply transitions into being a prophet. And so in Gilgal, according to the end of verse 11, they offer sacrifices, peace offerings. They rejoice in Yahweh. They also functionally begin to functionally recognize Saul as their king formally he's already been anointed but functionally the nation embraces him at this point point. and again in two weeks we'll come back to Samuel's words there and so remember the question that I I gave you in the beginning told you to hang on to it. it it's the question that many were asking at the end of chapter 10 it's the question that almost got some of them killed here at the end of chapter 11 and it's this how can this man save us How can can Saul save us? Now, I guarantee you, some of them were asking that question because Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin, right? And and Benjamin was not the most well-liked tribe at this point in Israel's history based upon what I just mentioned about the whole Civil War thing at the end of Judges. And and they had issues with Saul. And it's not a bad question to ask. How could Saul save them? And some may say, well, look at him. He's super tall. He was taller than everybody. How can he not save people? He's huge. He's huge. Or, or maybe they thought he's really strong or he's, he's very wise in his war strategies. But what is it that the text says? What do we find in 1 Samuel chapter 11 that answers the question? Central to the story that we find here, and I believe intentionally arranged and designed this way, is verse 6. Everything beginning in verse 1 leads to verse 6 and everything from verse 6 moves out. It's it's a central structure. The point of the story is this, that the spirit rushed upon Saul. That's what the author wants us to see. Central to the story, he wants us to understand that the spirit takes this shy, hesitating farmer and turns him into really a super judge of sorts. Hundreds of years later, the prophet Zechariah, not writing about this instance, but writing about another instance that Israel was facing, he wrote this, words that are timeless and relevant. It says this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And the cool thing about today's story is that that Saul even acknowledges as much, doesn't he? He recognizes at the end, he says, today, Yahweh has brought victory. Yahweh has won the battle and brought salvation to Israel. And we say yes, yes to his response. Ralph Davis writes this in his commentary. He says, Israel cannot afford to miss this point, and neither can we, by the way. That's why I'm quoting him. Salvation came not because Israel had a king but because Israel's king had Yahweh's spirit. Let me say that again. Salvation didn't come because Israel now had a king. It came because Israel's king had Yahweh's spirit. I guarantee you there were many in Israel that were tempted to go up to Samuel and say, I told you so. I told you we needed a king. This is why we needed a king. Look what he did. He did these amazing things. He led us into battle. We have the victory because of the king that we demanded. Mm. Saul and the people of Jabesh gilead there's a lot more eyeballs in the people's heads still because we demanded a king is what they would have wanted to say to, to Samuel. But what they and we have to understand is this. Yahweh was the hero on this day. And as we have worked through and talked about some pretty significant characters through these stories in the Old Testament, whether we're talking about Joshua or some of these judges, Yahweh is always the hero. It's never in their effort. It's always in His effort. In His grace, Yahweh chooses to rush upon by His Spirit, Saul, and lead them into victory. We dealt with a similar set of circumstances a couple of years ago when we were studying Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. One of the issues in the Corinthian church is there were some people that kind of had their heads cocked back and their their chest puffed out and they walked around and said, I've got the spiritual gift of tongues. What gift do you have? Service? Oh, sorry about that. You're, You're a loser. You're not up here with me. I'm at the apex of what it is to be a Christian. And they strutted their stuff based upon the spiritual gift they had. That They did not give themselves that was given to them, Paul reminds them. The whole term spiritual gift signifies that word charisma, which means it's a grace gift. It's something that's given to you. And Paul asks them the question, what do you have that you didn't receive? Trying to get them to understand, listen, this isn't something you've conjured up. This is something that God has given to you. And we're prone to forget that too. We're all prone to forget how much we're dependent upon God. That your your next heartbeat, pounding that blood through your body, is absolutely dependent upon His grace at work in your life that the oxygen you're going to breathe in through your lungs and it's going to send it through your body to keep everything functioning as it's supposed to is absolutely dependent upon him. Israel is going to forget this. No matter how much we don't want them to, Saul is going to forget this. And it's going to be devastating. But but friends, Christians, we cannot forget this. We must by their example Realize we cannot forget it. Jesus said it this way in John fifteen five. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, and without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Everything we have is dependent upon him. Without Jesus, without the Spirit, we are powerless. As a church, without Jesus, without the Spirit, we might as well change the name to Ichabod Baptist. Remember what Ichabod means? That the glory's departed. Yahweh's gone. He's checked out. Without the spirit working, that's what we might as well call ourselves because we're dead in the water without him. I give him praise today that he is at work and that he wants to work here and he wants to work through us. Absolutely. But I have one more point I want to make and that's this. If we'll be successful in the Christian life, And that should be a goal. If if we want to please God, if we want to glorify God, if we want to win the battles that come our way, and the battles, some of you are well aware, we've been talking about these recently, they are raging. Satan is the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If those things will be true, then we have to be filled with the Spirit. Like Saul, we need the Spirit to rush on us and take control of our day-to-day. Turn with me to, to one more text this morning, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, 919 in a pew Bible. Aaron already read this for us this morning, but uh, I want us to look at it again. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 15. He says this, Ephesians 5, 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Don't walk as an unwise person. When he says walk, he's talking about the way you live your life. Be careful how you walk. Don't walk as an unwise person, but as a wise person. Uh, Be a person that makes the best use of their time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, he says, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm going to do my best to not preach a whole sermon over just this particular text. We've already got our text. But, but to be clear, the command here to be filled with the Spirit. Now, that is not a command that, that is incumbent upon our salvation. So, in other words, he's not saying, if you're not filled with the Spirit, then you're not saved anymore. He's not dealing with what we would call justification. Our salvation, our deliverance has nothing to do with the, the level of the Spirit that we have. It has everything to do with have we put our faith and trust in what Christ accomplished on the cross. What he's dealing with here when he says be filled with the Spirit is what we call, not justification, but sanctification. That our growth in Christ, our growth in our willingness and ability to obey and follow Jesus. That's what he's dealing with here. And so he says be controlled by the Spirit rather than being controlled by wine. It's a really interesting picture that he sets up for us. When wine intoxicates a person... It becomes very evident to those nearby that they're no longer in control of themselves. Something else has taken control of them and it's noted through maybe they're an excessive crier at that point or they get angry or, or some slurred speech or some other uh, thing presents itself that you say, I don't think they're really under control anymore. And so he says, in the same way, when the Spirit intoxicates, when the Spirit fills a man, it is evident to those who are around him. There are things that we notice about them that are different. Well, what are those things? He actually lists them for us right here in the text. When you're filled with the Spirit, verse 19 through 21 happen. Really, you could take it on through the end of the book when he talks about how a husband loves his wife. Uh, and how a family works together. But what does he say right here in the context? He says, if you're filled with the Spirit, you'll address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You'll be singing and making melody in your heart. You'll be a person who encourages others by by teaching them and pointing them to Christ and, and singing along with them, teaching, worship, encouragement. And then he says that there'll be a person that is thankful in everything. They'll have gratitude. They'll have a faith that God's plan is the best plan and they'll show gratitude as a result of that finally he says this they'll willingly submit to others to one another they'll look to the interest of other people they'll prefer others really what he's getting at here is they'll be a person who shows love and if we were to go to another very important passage that describes the work of the spirit the fruit of the spirit what's the foremost fruit that's listed? love when the spirit is in control of a person when the spirit rushes in love will be evident in their life and as Christians there should be something about what's described here in 19 20 and 21 that just appeals to us I want that I want to be the person that's filled with the melodies of the Lord I want to be the person that shows gratitude I want to be the person that that puts the interest of others above my own. I want to be that person that truly loves. There's something compelling about that to the Christian. Why is that? Because the Spirit wants to work those things out in us. He wants to fill us, He wants to control us. And so the question then is what do I do to be filled with the Spirit? Pastor, give me the 12 steps. Give me the secret cure, the magic bullet. What does it take? One commentator puts it this way. He says, the continuous aspect of being filled, and that's, that's the verbiage here. The tense of the verb is that it's something that is constantly happening. It's not something you can say, well, I did it. I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm good for the rest of my life. No, it's something that we're working at moment by moment. And so he says, this continuous, it involves a day by day, moment by moment submission to the Spirit's control. He says the passive aspect indicates that it's not something we do but something that we allow to be done in us. The filling is entirely the work of the Spirit himself but he only works through our willing submission. So there's a key word that that author mentions twice, submission. How do I be filled with the Spirit? Submission is the key. Submission is this. It's a humble trust. Humble trust. You know what humble is, right? I'm out of the picture. That's stepping back and saying, I can't do this. It's a humble trust that produces joyful obedience in us. We submit to the Spirit like a patient submits to a surgeon. I don't say, no, doc, no, 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 and then he just shoots me with some anesthesia and throws me on the table and cuts me open. That's not submission. I say, I trust you, I trust your skill, I trust your education, I trust your craft, and I'm gonna willingly lay here while you use that scaffold, and you do whatever needs to be done. That's what submission looks like. It's a humble trust that leads to joyful obedience. It's waking up every day acknowledging that every breath you breathe is from him. And the strength you need to face every challenge that will come your way, every difficulty that will come your way is from him. That his plan for your day, though it will be filled with annoying people that you don't like and and cancer and and death and, and many unknowns, his plan is still better Than anything you could come up with. Humble trust that leads to joyful obedience. It's in having this humble trust that we're able to be filled with the Spirit and enabled to produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. And as I go through that list, I know some of you, you need that that, that peace. How do you get there? Humbly trusting. Humbly trusting. Some of you recognize that I need, I need love in my life. I'm not loving my family the way I'm supposed to. Or I need self-control because this addiction has control of me. I'm being controlled by something else. Humbly trusting that leads to joyful obedience. It's in having this humble trust that we're filled with the Spirit, we're enabled to encourage one another, as it says in verse 19. We're able to show gratitude in all circumstances, as it says in verse 20. We're able to to love and submit to one another, as it says in verse 21. It's in having this humble trust that we're, we're filled with the Spirit, we're enabled to love our spouse as Christ loves the church, obey our parents, train our children, as it says in chapters 5 and 6. It's in having this humble trust being filled with the Spirit that we are enabled to share our faith with our neighbors, overcome fear, anxiety, worry, win battles over sin, addictions and having this humble trust that we're filled with the Spirit and we're enabled to move forward as a church in unity. Continuing to trust God's plan as it unfolds. It's His church. We're His bride. We're not our own. The days, the weeks, the months that come ahead, we have to be, we must be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit makes all the difference for Saul and Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And friends, there is nothing greater than I can offer you today than to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit comes at a high cost. Jesus had to give his life so that the Spirit could come. And even he says that. There's nothing greater than I can do for you that's so what he tells his disciples in John 14 through 16, There's nothing greater that I can do for you than to send the Spirit who will be your teacher, he will be your advocate, he will be your helper. Be filled with the Spirit.